Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want you to know that Advent can be a really confusing time in the church. Because if we follow the readings uh, as they're assigned by the people who developed the Revised Common Lectionary, um, the readings uh, during the first, second, and often the third Sunday of Lent um, are apocalyptic. They speak of the end of time, and they speak of the coming again of Jesus. So that we get two things happening, right? We get the, because, you know, we all act like we've never heard this story before. <laughs> and we all act like we got to hear it again, and the baby's coming. And so we've got this anticipation, this waiting, as anybody who's ever been pregnant knows. There's the waiting on the baby, right? And so we've got this waiting for something that has already happened, but that we're thinking about again. And then we've also got this waiting on the coming of Jesus. And I want to remind you that um, not only is there apocalyptic stories in the Gospels that talk about the return of Jesus, but there's also an understanding that Jesus has already returned, <laughs> that Jesus is already here, is with us. And in fact, it's even a more personal kind of thing. It's a, a personal, intimate thing for each of us that Jesus inhabits our hearts, you know? and our lives, but I'd go so far as to say, and Jesus inhabits this creation right now as part of the one in three God, right? So we, we do this kind of interesting dance of things during Advent. Well, um, so you may find it odd that I chose to read from the very first chapter, the very first verses of the Gospel of Matthew. This is not the lectionary assigned reading for today, but I chose it because I think it's important for us to attend to. And so we hear the very first six verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, genealogies, you know, they're kind of a ho-hum thing when you're reading them like that. And you need to know that you're probably very grateful that I didn't read the whole thing because it goes on. <laughs> it goes on for a while. And the names are different. You know, they're, they're Jewish names. And so they don't fall off the tongue as easily, or we don't hear them as easily as we might if we were people who actually spoke the Jewish language. So, um, and so I, I do want you to know, however, that um, genealogies are actually very popular very popular and have been since the 1800s when, uh, and, and I read about this in the New Yorker ma magazine, uh, that uh, when Alex, Alex de Tocqueville, uh, who traveled around the United States in 1840 and, took, and assessed this country and how things were going, uh, this is what he wrote. You hardly meet an American who does not want to be connected a bit with his birth to the first settlers of the colonies. And as for branches of the great families of England, America seems to me totally covered by them. So what we know and what has been 
sort of the data taken on it, it's often said that genealogical research is the second most popular hobby in the United States after gardening. Who knew? Who knew that? And is the second most popular search category online after porn. Can you believe, now, can you believe that? I, I couldn't believe that. Well, our current, I think I to, already told you that our current book club, we're going to be reading and talking about The First Christmas. And, and this book emphasizes the importance of understanding the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And this is the year we will be in Matthew. So, uh, so we started with the genealogy, the very first words of the Gospel of Matthew. And, and what we kind of get to understand is that, oh, my word, uh, if you go through the whole genealogy, you, you realize that the whole purpose of talking about the genealogy is to make it clear that this is the Messiah, the one that we have waited upon, okay? So in their book, um, they just do this marvelous thing about talking about, uh, and, and you know, of course, that two of the Gospels don't have birth stories. But they talk about how we live in a country where a majority of Americans who are Christian uh, want to categorize the Gospels as either fact or fable. They either want it to be absolutely true or it's not true at all, right? But they, uh, the writers of this book, ask us to consider a third way. And the third way would be to understand that these birth narratives, including the genealogy that Matthew holds, is um, they are parables, and they are overtures. So the very first part of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are, are par parabolic stories about the birth of Jesus. And what we get in uh, this reading is we get uh, a historic parable. Uh, Matthew is trying to tell us a truth given us in this overture to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The genealogy that begins the gospel of Matthew takes up about two-thirds of chapter one. And, and in it, at the end of the long genealogy, um, there are 42 generations, is what the scripture says. Well, there are actually only 40. So that ought to give you a clue that we're not dealing in scientific fact like uh, we Americans today think of as fact. We're talking about historic parable. They are trying to make a point, and the point they're making is that in 14 generations, then something major happens, and then there are 14 more generations, then something major happens, and then there are 14. And so it was all to balance everything out, right? To, to make a pretty picture about these generations. So this is where we are. And, and so there must be something about this genealogy that we're not hearing. That we're, we're not hearing because we're not first century Jews. And so there are things in this genealogy that we ought to think about a little bit. Um, so if Jesus were on Ancestry.com, uh, this might be what he would find in his history. 
that what is important about this lineage is what appears to be this purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. It's written for Jewish followers, and we understand that because throughout the Gospel, Matthew quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures, and the writer seems to be intent from the very first words to call uh, forth some famous Jewish leaders to put Jesus in this continuum of famous, powerful Jewish leaders, and to make the argument, as I said earlier, for the idea that this, this one, this is the one you've been waiting on. This is the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, isn't that just interesting to you that at the very outset, we're getting to hear what the whole purpose of the gospel is. We're getting a clue as to everything that's happening. You're going to happen. And that Ma the writer of Matthew has a purpose and an intent and it did for before we ever hear about the life and the teaching and the the suffering and death and resurrection before we get to any of that good stuff we're going to hear Matthew say from the outset that this is what this is about this is why this is being written this is what I want you to hear well that's what they used to tell us when I took speech you know a good speaker will say what they're going to say they'll say it and then they'll tell you what they said and uh, that's kind of what Matthew is doing here, is it? So, uh, though this is an account of Jesus' ancestry, there are some issues to address. So, according to those who adhere to Jewish law, Israelite nationhood, or belonging to the Jewish people, uh, is, is understood uh, that it exclusively follow, follows the mother's line, the matriarchs of Israel the mothers of the tribes of Israel, but they, they don't get much of a shout-out here. The, the writer here uses the patriarchs of Israel in the lineage. And it might be that the writer knew that patriarchs would be more recognizable to the listeners, or it could be that this writer simply did not have a historical value in women as the bearers of the lineage. Even so, there are women listed in this lineage. And we only heard uh, four of them today. We'll hear the remaining one next week. There are four of them, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba is the last one. And so here, oh, I guess there are only four. Okay, well, anyway, I miscounted. Uh, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, and when her husband died, she was given in marriage to his brother, but told she had to wait until he was of age. And uh, she was never able to conceive, and so she deceived Judah and disguised herself and had relationships with him and stole his signet and staff so she could prove that the twins that she would carry in her womb uh, were his. And for that deception, they called her a whore. Rahab was a prostitute, saved two of Joshua's spies, and helped them escape, lied to authorities about her knowledge of them. So for that, she was called a prostitute and a liar. Ruth was a Gentile and made it into Jesus' lineage, a Gentile, a woman and a Gentile, a Moabite, who tricked Boaz 
a wealthy landowner into sleeping with her. <coughs> and Bathsheba, who we'll hear about next week, through no fault of her own, actually, was taken by King David and so becomes an adulteress. Oh, and by the way, the mother of Solomon. Now, this isn't a particularly stellar genealogy for Jesus. <laughs> of course, even though Jesus has some skeletons in the closet, there's a hope to be found in these verses. The list of patriarchs are clearly not uh, perfect. Not Abraham, and not Isaac, and not for sure not Jacob, and not David, and not Solomon. These are not perfect people. And the women of Jesus' genealogy are certainly not perfect. And yet, from them, from their lineage, this child was born who would become for us the hope-filled presence of God's love in the world. I think that's pretty good. So perhaps the best news in this genealogy for us that we don't actually hear in today's reading, but we'll hear next week, is the story doesn't end with David. It doesn't end with King David. The story continues to Jesus and continues beyond Jesus to us. God's presence was alive in the world then and now. And that's the reason for our hope. The first Christmas uh, tells us that in this bit of genealogy and in the birth narrative to come in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear a truth, not a fact, as we think of it. Not a fable, as some who reject the Christian faith or reject religion in, in total uh, would call it. But a truth. That in this story, uh, we are looking at a parable, and the parable uses language to tell us something we might not otherwise notice. Now, think about it this way, and this is one of the big points they make in their book. You know, Jesus tells all kinds of parables, is probably the greatest teacher of parables. And, uh, you know, the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. And some of them kind of tick us off, because, you know, like the, the late worker. You're like, what's, what's, on, what's even about that? You know, that's not fair. Well, you know, the state, the fair only comes once a year, and that's to Dallas. So, so anyway, uh, so there's these parables. And we wouldn't say that the parable of the prodigal son actually factually happened. We, we see it as a parable, right? We wouldn't say that, uh, you know, the parable of the woman finding the coin uh, actually is a real person that actually swept around looking for that coin. It's a parable. It's supposed to teach us something. And sometimes what it teaches us is revolutionary. It changes the whole perspective of what we're supposed to be hearing and seeing. And that's why I think all these women are in this. First of all, uses the patriarch, but then puts a little woman in there, right, you know, along the way, which causes everybody to perk up and say, well, what is this? Well, I want to say that, that probably the greatest hope in this genealogy is not the patriarchs and it's not the women that are scattered throughout, though they are, it is very important. 
the truth that's in this that Matthew is trying to get across is that this is the Son of Man, a term that had been used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the Son of Man that is interpreted now and translated now as the human one with all capital letters, okay? The human one. And this is so important because in short, as we hear in today's genealogical reading, Jesus was fully, completely human, just like us. And historically, there have been people who wanted to deny Jesus' humanity. started out really early. Uh, the docetists believed that all natural things, all things of the earth, humanity, uh, were evil. They were made. Crea all created things were evil. And that it was the spirit that was good. And so they couldn't have Jesus being human because then that would make him evil. And so they went round and round and they, everybody got all upset about it. And out of that came the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was set down as an example of what the beliefs of the church are. I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, blah, blah, blah. And in Jesus Christ, God's only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried. That's all human stuff. Conceived, born, suffered, died, fully human. Now, I think that's just great. And that's one thing I think we can hold, hold on to. Father Richard Rohr says, we Franciscans have always believed that the incarnation was already the redemption. Because in Jesus' birth, God was already saying that it was good to be human. And God was on our side. See, we've often, in our way of thinking, in, in the United States, in America, and probably a lot around the world, that um, Christmas is really about waiting for a baby, which is really nice. I mean, you know, it's beautiful. And so we get kind of caught up in the sweetness of this story, right? Especially from the Gospel of Luke, we get kind of caught up in the sweetness. Well, yeah, and that is right. I'm just saying. Uh, so we get caught up in the beauty of a child with us, you know? I mean, it's just beautiful. Uh, but the focusing on the baby really, I mean, it asks little of us about surrender and encounter and mutuality and studying the scriptures and practicing the teachings of Jesus. So we can't just leave Jesus as the baby. The story of Jesus' birth is more than about waiting on a baby to be born. It is about the coming reign of God and exactly what the adult Jesus preached. So to say, as we do in Advent, come Christ Jesus, is to live in the present moment. And that is one of the great callings of our faith, to live in this moment, right here, right now. So come Christ Jesus, call on us. And this isn't a cry of desperation but a confident shout of cosmic hope. You know, uh, the assigned readings from the epistle and Matthew have these words in it. In Romans, the assigned reading says, 
you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Now, I don't know who started saying that to be woke was a bad thing, because I want to tell you, it's right there in, in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, that we, the time is now for us to wake up. And Matthew says, keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Christ is coming. So the whole idea that we are now in this present moment to be aware and alive and attentive and alert and awake is an important part of our faith journey. Because to do that is then to have the chance to experience the hope-filled presence of Jesus Christ during Advent. This is a great call and claim upon our lives. This is what it means to experience a hope-filled presence. Well, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> in 1988, I actually remember this happening. And I don't know why I remember it happening, but when I read this story, I thought, oh my gosh, that, I do remember that happening. Um, it's a story about Gallaudet University. And if you know anything about Gallaudet, it's in Washington, D.C., and it's the only university in the United States uh, that is all deaf. I mean, in order to teach there, you have to know and be able to teach sign language. Well, it turns out in March of 1988, the university hired a new president. But the new president was not de deaf, nor knew sign language, but held a doctorate in nursing. Probably very highly qualified. Well, the students were angry. They wanted a deaf president. They wanted a president who had experienced what they had experienced. They wanted uh, someone who had lived their struggles and would know what it was to have to be quiet in a noisy world. They wanted somebody with that, the life that they had. And by the end of the week, the new president was replaced by a deaf president, one who knew what it was like to be a deaf human. That's this, our story, isn't it? I mean, God knew we needed someone who would live our lives, experience our joys, experience our hurts and sorrows, would suffer with us when we suffer. This is the, what, what God wanted to show us. And in Jesus, we encounter the human one who knows our lives, knows how we lived, knows our pain and our suffering, our disappointments, and knows our joys and loves and hopes and dreams. This, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The promise of God at Advent is a hope-filled presence for you and me. So I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you, and if you're online, do the same thing. And I want you to say to them, what if God was one of us? What if God was one of us? What if God was one of us? Well, my friends, God is one of us and knows our humanity and has lived our humanity and knows what we are being called to. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.